0: Hi everyone, and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. In the early hours of March 18th, 1990, two men breached the walls of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, lay siege to the treasures inside of it, and in under 90 minutes had escaped unscathed with 13 pieces of art in their possession. Those 13 works of art haven't been seen since. The thing about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist is that on the surface, it might seem like a simple whodunit, a true instance of the stars aligning for an almost perfect crime to have taken place. But as Anthony Amore, the security director of the museum says, the deeper and deeper you dig, the more questions are raised. Let's get ready to get dark as hell. (laughs) Our story starts back where we left it, the morning of March 18th, 1990. At 6.45 a.m. that Sunday morning, the maintenance man, Edgar Queensbury, arrived at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum for his shift. Standing at the side entrance that just hours earlier the two thieves had carted their stolen goods out of, Queensbury buzzed the call box, as was the custom since he himself didn't have keys, and waited for the night shift guards to let him in. No one answered. He buzzed again. As he stood outside the door, the daytime shift guard, a woman named Kelly San Marino, also arrived. While Queensbury continued buzzing the call box, San Marino started to knock on the windows, thinking perhaps the night guards had fallen asleep and needed to be woken up. But nothing inside the museum seemed to stir. After several minutes of this, San Marino ran across the street to a Northeastern University dorm, where she was able to use a phone and called her supervisor, Fred O'Shea, to let him know that something seemed wrong. 10 minutes later, O'Shea was the third person to arrive at the museum. And with him, he brought a master key set that he used to open the side entrance. O'Shea, San Marino, and Queensberry walked into the dark, silent museum and saw that no one was at the watch desk. At 8.15 a.m., Fred O'Shea called 911. Within minutes, at least seven Boston police squad cars had turned up outside the museum. Led by Sergeant Paul Crossan, the assembled officers and two police canines secured the main entrances of the museum and began to search the museum floor by floor, starting with the fourth, the uppermost. No one had any idea what it was that they were walking into. Was this a kidnapping? Had a bomb been planted inside? Were the guards dead somewhere in one of the carefully decorated rooms designed by Isabella Stewart Gardner herself? It wasn't until nearly half an hour after the police arrived on the scene that the search team reached the basement and found Randy Heston and Rick Abbott still handcuffed where the thieves had left them still bound with duct tape around their heads. During the night, Abbott reportedly, quote, relaxed somewhat after he realized that the thieves were not going to burn down the building. To pass the time, he allegedly started singing a favorite Bob Dylan song, I Shall Be Released, whose opening stanza includes the line, so I remember every face of every man who put me here. When he was later asked what the thieves looked like, Abbott told Boston police that, quote, one of the thieves appeared to be in his late 30s, about five feet, nine inches, slim with gold-wired glasses and a mustache, which was probably fake. The other appeared to be in his early 30s, six feet tall and heavier with chubby cheeks. He also sported a mustache. As Sunday masses all throughout Boston began, the news of what had taken place at the museum began to trickle out throughout the city's streets as well. Ulrich Boser reported in his book, The Gardner Heist, that, quote, by mid-morning, there were more than two dozen people on the scene, FBI agents, city police, state troopers, EMTs, bomb experts, and a fully staffed ambulance. Almost immediately after the theft had been discovered, the FBI had been alerted, and just as quickly, they took the lead on the investigation on the grounds that it was believed that the artworks could cross state lines, and thus was under their jurisdiction. As the investigation began, reporters also descended onto the museum, and the headlines of the heist started to crop up throughout Boston, New England, and the world. One of the details that many journalists focused on was the museum's lack of insurance. A spokesperson for the museum claimed that the gardener didn't have it in their $2.8 million budget to maintain a policy that they claimed would have cost them $3 million. Furthermore, because of Isabella's strict stipulations that no new art be added to the collection, the museum claimed that even if they did have insurance, they wouldn't have been able to buy replacement art for what was lost. Since then, however, it has been made clear that for somewhere between $10,000 to $50,000, not the millions as originally claimed, the museum would have been able to acquire an insurance policy, one that would have covered up to $10 million in theft-related incidents. But that wasn't the case. And without insurance, the museum had no insurance adjuster, it had no underwriter, it had no safety net. Instead, board members turned to auction houses Sotheby's and Christie's to help the museum in securing some sort of reward for the painting's return. Three days after the theft, Anne Hawley, the director at the time, was able to publicly announce that a $1 million reward was being offered, quote, for information that leads directly to the recovery of all of the items in good condition, and that no questions would be asked about the circumstances, of the return. But as the museum pleaded with the world for the return of the 13 stolen treasures, the FBI investigators were looking inwards, looking inside the museum for the first clues about what exactly had happened on March 18th. Almost immediately, the FBI team assembled to handle the Gardner theft, believed that the heist had been orchestrated with help from inside the museum. And just as quickly, lead investigator FBI agent Dan Fallsden believed that the guards had something to do with the theft. For one thing, though DNA analysis was still in its infancy at the time, investigators were surprised by the overall lack of physical evidence that had been left behind. There were no footprints to follow. The partial fingerprints that they were able to lift from the abandoned frames returned no matches in the FBI database. There wasn't even so much as a stray hair to be found. Investigators focused more closely on Rick Abbott when it came to the two guards, given that Randy Huston had never worked a night shift before March 18th. Abbott had a history of showing up to work in less than a sober mindset. Abbott had admitted using marijuana and alcohol before work, and he also admitted during an interview that he sometimes took LSD and cocaine too, though he swore that he was sober the night of the heist. Noticeably, Abbott had submitted his notice of res- resignation two weeks before the heist, and his behavior of the night in question was also enough to catch the investigators' eyes. Investigators wondered, why, in the first place, did Abbott ever open the door to the two men? Abbott claimed that since they looked like cops, he let them in and that museum policy had never told him not to let in some of Boston's finest. This was quote, not so, according to Lyle Grindel, the retired director of security for the Gardener and the one who hired Abbott in 1988. Grindle told the Boston Globe that all guards who worked the night shift were warned in writing not to admit police officers who had not been directly summoned by the museum. Lawrence O'Brien, the Gardner's former deputy director of security, agreed that the policy was written into the museum security manual, which was kept at the guard desk, a manual that Abith had surely glimpsed over, if not read somewhat thoroughly, as a security guard. Abbott's inexplicable opening of the side door during his 1230 a.m. patrol, minutes before the museum was breached, was also something that the investigators had questions about. Abbott later claimed that, quote, he did it to make sure for myself that the door was securely locked. And that, quote, I don't know what the others did, but I was trained to do it that way. He said that security logs would show that he tested the door on other nights as well. Records, however, didn't back that claim up. More records of that night also raised other, more curious questions. Motion detectors showed the movements that occurred throughout the night, including the thieves' movements during their rampage. It is, of course, how investigators learned where the two men were during the night and when. What the motion detector records don't show, however, is the thieves entering or leaving the first floor's blue room where Che Tortoni by Manet was taken? There, the only footsteps detected at 1227 and again at 12.53 a.m. match the times that Abbott said that he passed through on patrol. Abbott has never been able to explain away that particular detail. Not even during the various lie detector tests he has undergone throughout the years. Tests that he has scored inconclusively on while his counterpart, Randy Heston, passed. Heston, it should be noted, was so shaken by the events on the 18th that within days of being rescued from the basement, he had quit the security job. "Quote: The more I learn about Rick, the more disappointed I get in him is something that Lyle Grindel once told the Boston Globe after learning more about the security guard that he had hired. More weirdness began to crop up as the investigation dug deeper. The FBI released a security video from the museum on the night before the theft, showing Abbot buzzing in an unidentified man into the museum to converse at the security desk. Abbott told investigators that he could not recall the incident or recognize the man, so the FBI requested the public's assistance. Several former museum guards came forward and said that the stranger was Abbott's boss. The museum's deputy security chief, Lawrence O'Brien, the same one who claimed that guards weren't allowed to give access to anyone to the museum at night. Two weeks prior to that, one of the night guards reported seeing on one of the surveillance camera video streams a quote, young man being assaulted by a couple of men, then heard someone, perhaps a young man, banging on the museum side door asking for refuge inside. The guard told the young man that he would call the police instead. Before police arrived, however, all of the men, including the one being assaulted, jumped into a car and roared off. No one has ever been able to make anything of the incident. But investigators wondered if this had been perhaps the first attempt to breach the museum's security. Other employees were questioned, as were former ones. One security guard, who had only worked for the museum for a few months, quit, quote, so abruptly that he didn't pick up his last paycheck. FBI agent Dan Foulsen tracked him down in France, but eventually determined that the guard had nothing to do with the theft. Similarly, the former director of the museum, a man named Roland Hadley, had exhibited strange behavior in the time frame that the robbery occurred within. He'd been going through a divorce and his ex-wife described, quote, in court documents, a number of questionable behaviors like closing joint checking accounts and selling off rare books without telling her. He too, though, was eventually dismissed as a suspect. The initial investigation led agents throughout the country as well as the world. Tips poured in from all over Boston, though most of the public often mistook high quality prints and copies for the real masterpieces. In the Gardner heist, Bolzer shares such mishaps, like the time a man walking his dog through Charlestown believed that he saw the concert hanging on a neighbor's wall. When one of the museum's curators and an FBI agent showed up at the woman's door the next day, she quickly invited them in to show them that the painting was nothing more than a replica. Two women who were teaching English in Japan reported to the FBI when they returned to the States the story of one of their students, quote, an eccentric Japanese art collector who claimed to own the storm. The man was also known to have ties to organized crime, leading investigators to believe that the claim was a somewhat reputable lead. Despite six months of diplomacy and red tape and the first ever American search warrant to be issued in Japan, once American agents, Japanese officers, and a gardener curator arrived at the man's house, quote, even Falson could tell that it was a crude, draw-by-numbers imitation. Another tip and trip led to Paris, where American agents discussed with French prosecutors, quote, a tip that discredited French business magnate Jean-Marie Messier, who had allegedly bought several of the stolen Rembrandts. However, when he later reached out to France's art theft squad, Agent Falson experienced legal and diplomatic woes following a complaint that he had quote, not gone through proper channels to work with the government's art theft team. Eventually, the French team refused to assist at all. Even in entertainment, the heist became a recurring motif. A piece about the theft in Bloomberg reported that quote, copies of the paintings occasionally showed up on television shows, subtle references to a character's criminal past, On The Simpsons, Mr. Burns was once arrested for possessing the stolen works. A copy of one painting used on the show Monk looked so real, the FBI called the producers to double-check that it was just a prop. For years, the investigation carried on, sometimes in high-energy bursts of activity, though mostly by the careful weeding through of tips and digging through material. Some within the gardener grumbled about the quality of the investigation, claiming that the case hadn't been given the proper priority or wondering why the agents assigned to the case weren't more senior in rank. And then, four years after the artworks had disappeared from their frames, the first true big break seemed to arrive in the form of a plain white envelope. The envelope arrived in the spring of 1994. It was as unassuming as they came. A simple envelope postmarked from New York and the letter had been typed. It was the contents of the letter though that seemed to promise the first big break in the case in four years. And director of the Gardner, Anne Hawley, immediately handed it over to the FBI. The exact contents of the letter have never been publicly revealed But, from the Boston Globe, this is what we know of it. The letter writer showed considerable knowledge of the paintings and of the international art world. To establish credence, the writer conveyed information that was only known by the museum and the FBI at the time. The writer said that the stolen paintings were being stored in archival conditions and had not yet been sold. But, he warned, The museum should agree swiftly to the exchange because the paintings were being held in a country where a buyer who did not know that they had been stolen could claim legal ownership. The writer explained that they were a third-party negotiator and did not know the identity of the thieves. They explained that the artwork was stolen to reduce a prison sentence, but as the opportunity had passed, there was no longer a motive to keep the artwork and they wanted to negotiate a return. The writer wanted immunity for themselves and all others involved, and a 2.6 million for return of the artwork, which would be sent to an offshore bank account at the same time the art was handed over. The writer proposed a clandestine way for the museum to respond to the overture. If the gardener was open to negotiating a ransom deal, it was to send a signal to the writer by arranging to have the number one inserted in the U.S. foreign dollar exchange listing for the Italian Lira that would be published in the Boston Sunday Globe on May 1st, 1994. And in fact, that Sunday, the number one was listed, a few spaces in front of the actual U.S. dollar exchange rate for the Lira. Matthew Storen, who was the editor of the Globe in 1994, said that he was told of the letter's contents and agreed to insert the number, being careful not to make the currency listing itself inaccurate, at the request of Richard Swenson, the special agent who was in charge of the FBI Boston office. Quote, I saw it as a community service decision, according to Storen, adding that he cleared the move with William O. Taylor, the Globe's publisher at the time and made it clear to Swenson that he expected the paper to get the first word if the overture led to the painting's return. May 1st came and went. The next week, another letter arrived. According to the second letter, the writer was, quote, encouraged to see that the museum was interested in negotiating an exchange. But he was alarmed by the aggressive reaction by federal, state, and local law enforcement after the museum received his letter. Were the museum and authorities interested in getting the paintings returned or in arresting a low-level intermediary, he wondered. Quote, you cannot have both, he wrote in capital letters adding, quote, right now I need time to both think and start the process to ensure confidentiality of the exchange. If he decided it was impossible to continue negotiating, he wrote, he would provide the museum with some clues to the painting's whereabouts. And so they waited for a third letter to arrive. It never did. Investigators now believe that the letter may have been a hoax despite all initial signs pointing to its veracity. Anne Hawley even addressed the letter writer in public years later in a press conference saying, quote, We remain confident that these rare and important treasures will be returned to the Gardner Museum and enjoyed again by the general public. These works have the power to inspire thinking and creativity, two processes essential to a civil society. Isabella Stewart Gardner, this museum's founder, understood that when she left them, quote, for the education and enjoyment of the public forever. On the occasion of the 15th anniversary of the theft, I call out to an important person to us. Years ago, I received a lead from a sincere individual, giving me information that was comforting and genuine. The person clearly was concerned about the stolen art and knew its condition. We acted in good faith and complied with the first request. I'm very much hoping that this person will contact me again by writing or calling or through our security director. I assure complete confidentiality. She also advised whoever was holding the stolen art that, in order to protect the artworks, that they must be stored in conditions that didn't allow for swings in temperature and humidity. Ideally, 70 degrees Fahrenheit and 50% humidity. In 1995, the statute of limitations for prosecuting anyone who had been involved passed. And investigators expected even more tips than the ones that they've received daily to arrive. Since then, federal prosecutors have doubled down on the expired statute, going so far as to claim that even now, anyone who willingly returns the artworks will not be prosecuted. In 1997, the reward was increased from 1 million to five. So too that year did another lead seem to arrive, this time through the Boston Herald. Reporter Tom Mashberg was taken by a source, William Youngworth, who was, quote, an antiques dealer who had associations with the Boston mob families to a Brooklyn warehouse where he was allowed to see what Mashberg believed to be a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Quote, On the front page of the Herald, the paper claimed, we've seen it in bold typeface, further explaining that their reporter had witnessed the stolen painting for himself. However, An analysis of the paint chips that Mashburg was given proved nothing concrete. Tests of the paint chips, well, they only demonstrated that it dated from that era, not that it was the Rembrandt in question. One of the most baffling components of the case is the complete lack of physical evidence there is to further the investigation Though the forensic analysis team did pull latent and partial fingerprints from the frames, it was impossible to conclude if any of them could have been the thieves, despite getting no hits in the FBI database, simply because so many other individuals had handled the frames on the pieces of art before the heist ever took place. As FBI agent Dan Fousen put it to Ulrich Balzer, quote, I have never heard of another case on the magnitude of the Gardner, where you didn't have a single concrete piece of evidence. Even still to this day, I don't even know if the thieves wore gloves or not. And without physical sources, anyone in the whole world can be a suspect. What makes this lack of evidence even more difficult to grapple with is the fact that what little physical evidence the FBI did have has since disappeared. The duct tape and handcuffs that the thieves had used to restrain the museum's two security guards, evidence that might, even 20, 31 years after the crime, retain traces of DNA? They vanished from the FBI's custody. All this according to Stephen Kirkjan, a Boston reporter and an author of a book focusing on the heist. Kirkjan reported via the Boston Globe that, quote, the FBI, which collected the crime scene evidence, lost the duct tape and handcuffs, according to three people familiar with the investigation. Despite an exhaustive internal search, the FBI has been unable to find the evidence. It's unclear when the items vanished, although two people said that they have been missing for more than a decade, and whether they were thrown away or simply misfiled. Regardless of when the vanishing act happened, The loss of evidence has only made the investigation into the loss of the art that much more difficult. So it was, as is the case with such twisting turns and seemingly endless possible directions, that investigators were forced to return back to square one. But it was here where investigators began to wonder. What if their search wasn't supposed to be focused on various criminal connections across the world over? What if it wasn't as involved and elaborate as that? Because what if the artworks had never left Boston? Or more specifically, what if the art had never left Boston's underworld? According to Bolzer's The Gardener Heist, quote, The current value of the stolen art trade is between four to six billion, making it one of the largest black markets in the world. It should be no wonder then that art theft and the mob go hand in hand. And the mob in Boston are also just as inextricably linked. Crime families have been present in New England and more specifically in Boston as well as Providence, Rhode Island, my own hometown, since before the Prohibition. Two separate families emerged in these two cities in 1916 and 1917. The Boston crime family was first founded by Gaspare Messina in 1916, while Frank Morelli formed the Providence crime family the following year. During the 1930s, Filippo Bucola became the head of the Boston crime family and ordered the first murder of his rivals, that of Frank Wallace, who was the head of South Boston's Gustin gang, which was Irish in nationality. Frank Morelli was still serving as a head of the Providence crime family. And in 1932, the two combined the Providence family with the Boston family and became what is now known as the New England crime family. Bukola ruled the entire family from his posting of East Boston, and upon murdering the head of the Jewish mob, Charles Solomon, quote, he became the most powerful mobster in Boston. He retired from his position as the head of the family in the spring of 1952, where Raymond Petrarca ascended to the status as boss of the New England crime family and swiftly moved the seat of the family to Providence. There needs to be a distinction made here for those not as well-versed in the politics and nuances of New England mob practices. On one hand, we have crime families known colloquially as the mob or the mafia interchangeably. And then there are gangs, gangs like the Winter Hill Gang. The Winter Hill Gang rose to the power it's known for during the 1960s, when the Boston Irish Gang War began. Following an altercation on Labor Day weekend in 1961, the McLaughlin Gang of Charlestown, also known as the Charlestown Mob, and the Winter Hill Gang of Somerville, members of the two gang fought, beat, shot, and murdered at least 60 men between the two groups, culminating in the murders of the last two associates of the McLaughlin Gang. This left the Winter Hill Gang which was led by Howie Winter following the shooting death of its former leader during the war, as quote, the top Irish mob syndicate in New England. Some even believed it was the top Irish mob syndicate throughout the entire East Coast. It was in 1979 though, when James Bulger, known as Whitey, took over power as the head of the Winter Hill Gang. The activities of the Winter Hill Gang were varied, included many typical organized crime interests like, quote, racketeering, loan sharking, assault, murder, bribery, fraud, theft, robbery, illegal gambling, drug trafficking, money laundering, corruption, extortion, prostitution, and, rounding it all out, weapons trafficking. Throughout his reign, Whitey was known for his, quote, readiness to use violence. It was something that he had exhibited since he was a 14-year-old gang member in Somerville. Murder wasn't a last resort to Whitey. It was the first tool that he reached for to accomplish his goals. He was known to murder wayward members of his own gang, and he has been implicated in the murder of at least three cohorts from his days in the Mullen gang during the Irish gang wars. Perhaps one of the most famous instances of his proclivity for murder was, quote, the killing of a completely innocent man who happened to be giving a lift home to one of Whitey's targets. Whitey and his control had infiltrated several government and law enforcement agencies and the corruption of these agencies afforded him, truly friends in high places and friends who were willing to look the other way, not just for years, but decades. Another well-known facet of Whitey Bolger's reign over Boston was his support for the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, which was waging war against Britain in Northern Ireland during the period known as the Troubles. South Boston, affectionately known as Southie, my former neighborhood, especially was known to show their support for the IRA, and Whitey, a good old Southie boy, was no exception. He was known to use portions of the money that he received from shaking down drug dealers and distributors as a fundraising tool, sending the money overseas to the IRA. And he also coordinated various weapons smuggling operations in support of the IRA. One of the drug dealing shakedowns allegedly amounted to $1 million, which Whitey sent to the IRA chief of staff, Joe Cahill. It was Whitey's known support of the IRA that initially quirked some of the brows of the investigators working the Gardner case. FBI agent Thomas McShane was the one who led the investigation that examined whether or not Whitey and the Winter Hill Gang had been involved with the theft. And there were some strong pieces of evidence to suggest that he had. McShane, quote, Determined that Whitey's strong ties with the Boston police could explain how the thieves acquired legitimate police uniforms or perhaps that real police were arranged to do the heist. McShane also learned that falsely tripping fire alarms ahead of robberies and other such activities was, quote, a calling card of the IRA and of the IRA's rival, the Ulster Volunteer Forces. At the time of the robbery, there were IRA agents and UVF actors in Boston, and both organizations had, quote, demonstrated capability in the past of pulling off art heists and have been rumored to dabble in the trafficking of stolen art. McShane theorized that Whitey's connections to the IRA may have been strong enough to get the Irish members to pull off the heist for him. So, years before anyone would be asking, where's Whitey?, FBI agents turned to Whitey himself and asked, where's the art? The thing was, Whitey didn't know. Whitey claimed that he did not organize the heist and hadn't played any part in it whatsoever. He had actually assigned Winter Hill gang members to figure out who had organized the robbery because he hadn't sanctioned it. He was reportedly upset that someone had committed the robbery, quote, on his turf, And he wanted to be paid tribute. Another thing about Whitey Bulger, one that at the time not many people knew, he was an FBI informant, had been since the mid-70s, and there's no way even his very lenient handler, Agent John Conley, would have let Whitey get away with the Gardner heist. Still, Others do believe that Whitey and his gang played a role in the theft and used their connection overseas to their benefit. According to Charlie Hill, a retired art and antiquities investigator for Scotland Yard, he believes that Whitey gave the Gardner works to the IRA and that they are most likely in Ireland. Hill works his theory like this, quote, Two clues jump out at me. One, the crime happened the night of St. Patrick's Day which, as we all know, is a very Irish holiday. Quote two, one of the robbers used the word mate when he tied up the security guards. That's not a word Americans say. Randy Heston, in an email to Bloomberg backing up Charlie Hill's account, did in fact confirm that one of the thieves addressed him as mate. But Heston also believed that it was said with either, quote, an American or Canadian accent and that he, quote, never had any reason to think that they were from outside North America. When Whitey was finally captured in June 2011, after 16 years on the run, none of the stolen pieces from the Gardener were found with him, though. Charlie Hill has since revised his theory, according to the piece in Bloomberg, and, quote, says he believes that the two original thieves must be loosely affiliated with the IRA, but not acting on its behalf, and traveled from Ireland to steal the art. The Whitey and the Winter Hill Gang seemed to have been ruled out. That didn't mean the other half of the Boston underworld was free from suspicion. No, it was only a year after the robbery that investigators began to suspect that perhaps it wasn't the Irish mob that they had to worry about, but that it was the New England crime family they needed to worry about instead. It was the murder of a patriarchal crime family member that first raised the suspicions of investigators about a possible connection between the crime family and the Gardner heist. 51 year old Bobby Donati was found dead in the trunk of his Cadillac, stabbed 28 times with his throat slit on September 21st, 1991. The murder was discovered in the midst of yet another mob war, this time within the Patriarcha family itself, as Raymond Patriarcha's son struggled to unite the family following his father's death. A mobster named Frank Salemi took over the family following the March 26, 1990 arrest of 26 Patriarcha crime family members and two warring factions broke out within the organization. Those who were loyal to the old ways and those who are now loyal to the new of Salemi. Bobby Donati, by loyalty to his boss, Vincent Ferrara, who was in jail at the time, was a patriarchal old loyalist. And he was terrified. Many patriarchal operatives reported that they were in constant fear for their lives during this period, quote, as both sides reportedly drew up lists of people that they intended to kill and began doing so. According to Stephen Kirkjan's book about the heist, Master Thieves, quote, throughout 1991, friends and associates noted that Donati had become less outgoing and visibly anxious. He stayed home more often. In August, he told one friend that he'd noticed two men wearing black jogging outfits near the house that he was renting. By September, Bobby was dead. And to most people in the underworld, it didn't quite make sense sense. Kirkjian reported that, quote, Donati's sister Lorraine believes that the brutality of her brother's killing suggests it was motivated by more than being on the wrong side in a gang war. One bullet could have accomplished what they were looking to do, she said. No one has to be beaten and stabbed like that unless there was some dark secret behind it. The multiple stabbings, the slit throat, Perhaps it had been a message and a sign. Rumors swirled that Bobby Donati had been about to speak to police regarding the Gardner theft. But it was someone else who spoke to the police instead. Notorious New England-based art thief, Miles J. Connor. As the story goes, Connor was in jail at the time of the heist, so his skills at stealing art weren't used at the Gardner but he believed Donati and criminal David Houghton were the masterminds. Connor had worked with Donati in past art heist and claimed that the two had cased the Gardner museum together where Donati took interest in the Eagle finial. Connor also claimed that Houghton visited him in jail after the heist and told him that he and Bobby organized it and were going to use the paintings to get Connor out of jail. This story, though, didn't quite jive with the investigators. For one, why would Donati have been so eager to get Connor, a simple art thief, out of jail when his own boss was the one who could actually protect him? Many in the crime networks believe that Bobby Donati certainly could have pulled off the heist, given his own criminal experiences. But in that same thread, it didn't fit. At the time of his death, Donati was 51, and if we're to believe Miles J. Connor's story, David Houghton, the other thief, was well over 300 pounds. Simply put, these two suspects didn't fit anything near the description the police gave of the thieves, who were supposedly in their 20s or 30s and of a medium build. Someone who did match the sketch, though, was a Donati associate, David Turner, who was also known by the nickname Teflon Gangster for his ability to simply walk away unscathed and uncharged from any of his crimes. And by turning their gaze to David Turner, investigators described and discovered a smaller, more niche set of mobsters who may have held the answers to the questions surrounding the stolen art of Isabella Stewart Gardner. To understand how the mob works, you have to understand connections. It's a network of relationships, a true iteration of the who's who game. And the person who seemed to be at the top of the pyramid of this particular game was a man named Carmelo Merlino. Carmelo Merlino was an underboss in the Patriarca crime family, and he owned TRC Auto Electric, an auto body shop on Dot Avenue in Dorchester. While it presented itself as a car repair shop, behind the facade was the fact Merlino's place of business was actually a front for the drug trafficking that Patriarca associates oversaw. Some of the men employed by Merlino might be familiar names to you by now. Bobby Donati, David Houghton, David Turner, and one other, Steven Rossetti. A frequent presence in the shop was another man, Robert Guaranti. In 1992, the FBI began investigating one of these employees, David Turner. The FBI had been told by a source that Turner, quote, had access to the paintings, which was something that Merlino seemed to confirm when he was arrested that same year for cocaine trafficking. Merlino attempted to cut a deal with the authorities by telling them that, for a reduced prison sentence, he would be able to return the missing Gardner artworks. This did not go according to plan. Merlino allegedly asked Turner to use his access to the paintings, but the best Turner could do was turn a belief that told him that they were in a church in South Boston, though no paintings were ever discovered. Seven years later, members of what we'll call the Merlino gang were arrested in a sting operation. Turner, Rossetti, and several others, along with Merlino himself, were caught and arrested by FBI on the very day that they had planned to rob a Loomis Fargo vault, an armored car depot. In particular, the FBI was interested in questioning Merlino about the stolen art, because in the years prior, he was, quote, caught on an FBI wiretap claiming that he knew where they were. But when authorities offered him the deal of turning the artwork over for a more lenient sentence, like history repeating itself, Merlino couldn't do it. As it was, he was sentenced to 47 years in prison. Martin Leppo, Merlino's former defense attorney, said that during his sentence, quote, "Mel begged me to tell him where the paintings were. He thought I could find out who had them." so he could help return them. Instead, Merlino died in prison in 2005. With Merlino out of play, the FBI turned back to Turner. During a round of questioning, the FBI allegedly told Turner that they had information that he had participated in the Gardner robbery, but if he assisted the authorities in getting the pieces of art back, he would be released and the charges against him would be dropped the same offer that Merlino had been made. According to Turner, he didn't know who stole the art, much less where the 13 pieces were at that time. Needless to say, despite his claims of entrapment and that the FBI had let the Loomis-Fargo plot proceed so, quote, they could pressure him for information about the Gardner paintings, Turner was found guilty and sent to prison. It was in prison though, that Turner turned to a friend of his from the TRC auto electric days, Robert Guarenti. Guarenti was something of a father figure to Turner and through their relationship, Turner got in touch with a Manchester, Connecticut mob associate, a man named Robert Gentile. Turner knew Gentile through Guarenti and quote, in 2010, wrote a letter to Gentile asking if he would call Turner's former girlfriend, because Turner claimed she would be able to help recover the Gardner paintings. The conversation with the ex-girlfriend took place and she shared with Gentile that Turner needed him to quote, meet with two of his ex-convict friends in Boston in order to continue whatever scheme Turner had cooked up. But Gentile refused, even though he had been working with the FBI through the whole ordeal. What happened next was something straight out of a Goodfellas deleted scene. Because in that same year, Robert Guarenti's widow, Elaine, came forward. And she said that Gentile was the one who had the artwork by way of her husband, who would have been dead for six years by then. As Elaine told it, Guarenti had, quote, previously owned some of the artwork, though the details of how her husband got the art into his possession were never clarified. In the early 2000s, Guarenti was diagnosed with cancer, and when he became ill, he allegedly, quote, gave the paintings to Gentile for safekeeping. Upon hearing this, Gentile denied any involvement with the art. He was never given any artwork, knew nothing about the artwork, and clearly had no idea where the artwork was at the present time. The FBI didn't precisely buy it. In 2012, Gentile was hit with a one-two punch. One, he was arrested on federal drug charges, and it's believed that the FBI set him up for the crime that he was charged with in order to pressure him for information about the Gardner theft. While in custody, he underwent a polygraph test which indicated that he was lying when he denied any knowledge of the theft or location of the artwork. According to the Hartford Courant, questions about if he had, quote, advanced knowledge of the Gardner heist, ever possessed a Gardner painting, or knew the location of any of the stolen paintings were asked and Gentile denied them all. However, quote, the results showed a likelihood of less than 0.1% that he was truthful gentile maintained that he was telling the truth and demanded a retest during the second test he claimed that elaine Guarenti had once shown him the missing rembrandt self-portrait to which quote the polygraph machine indicated he was telling the truth with gentile in prison the other shoe dropped the FBI executed a search warrant of his Connecticut house in May of 2012, based on their belief that he was involved with the missing artwork. Somehow, some way, they believed Gentile had been part and parcel to the continued disappearance of the art. And what they found was pretty shocking. During the search, the FBI found, quote, a secret ditch beneath a false floor in the backyard shed but found it empty. Gentile's son explained that the ditch flooded a few years prior and his father was upset about whatever was stored there. Quote, in the basement investigators also found a copy of the Boston Herald from March, 1990, reporting the theft along with a piece of paper indicating what each piece might sell for on the black market. Beyond those both damning and confounding discoveries. Nothing truly concrete was found to connect Gentile to the missing art. Still denying any involvement, Gentile went to prison for 30 months on the drug charges. When he was released, he spoke with reporter Stephen Kirkjian and shared his side of the story. He claimed that, quote, he explained the first list found in his basement, was written up by a criminal trying to broker the return of the works from Guarantee and was talking to Gentile as an intermediary. When asked about what could have been in the ditch, Gentile could not recall, but believed it could have been small motors. Shortly after being released from the drug charge imprisonment, during a 2015 setup for an illegal gun sale with an undercover FBI agent, federal investigators claim that Gentile offered to sell some of the missing artwork to that undercover agent for $500,000 each. In 2016, Gentile faced charges for the setup and was accused of two weapons charges for selling a gun to a friend and an associate who had been convicted of three murders. The associate had been turned into an FBI informant, specifically in regards to the Gardner heist. During this hearing Gentile claimed he was, quote, duped into selling the gun by federal prosecutors and FBI agents who wanted to use weapons charges and the prospect of a long prison sentence to leverage him into helping them recover the missing art. Closing in on 80 years old, as he was, the offer still stood for Gentile. Lead investigators to the art, cooperate with the investigation, and his charges would be dropped so he could walk free in these golden years of his life. In the end, Gentile, whether through lack of involvement or refusal to rat, refused. His lawyer, Ryan McGugan, spoke on behalf of his client, saying, quote, they could make the reward $100 million, and it wouldn't change anything because there ain't no paintings. Gentile was found guilty on the gun charges, trumped up though they may have been, and after serving his sentence, was released from prison on March 18, 2019. He still denies any involvement, though investigators, quote, remain convinced that he is holding back what he knows. Gentile, in the opinion of some, very well could be the last living link to the Gardner heist, and the last person alive who knows where the stolen art is. Where precisely does that seemingly dead end leave us? The FBI's current theory is based on their belief that the artwork was stolen by quote, low level associates of one of Boston's organized crime rings. In 2013, the FBI made the historically surprising move by publicly announcing that they believed they knew the identities of the two original thieves and that those two individuals are dead. Bridget Deloria's special agent in charge of the FBI's Boston office revealed for the first time in the investigation in a press conference these facts. Quote, The FBI believes with a high degree of confidence that in the years after the theft, the art was transported to Connecticut and the Philadelphia region. And some of the art was taken to Philadelphia, where it was offered for sale by those responsible for the theft. With that same confidence, we have identified the thieves who are members of a criminal organization with a base in the mid-Atlantic states and New England. After the sale, which took place approximately a decade ago, the FBI's knowledge of the art whereabouts is limited. Though the FBI did not publicly identify the individuals, sources, quote, familiar with the investigation, said that they were associated with a gang from Dorchester. The gang was loyal to Boston Mafia boss, Frank Saleme, and ran their operations out of an automobile repair shop run by criminal Carmelo Merlino. Beyond that, anything from the FBI remains tight-lipped and speculative. And we all remain questioning, what exactly has become of the stolen Gardner Museum art? Let's discuss some of those hashtag questions now. Hashtag question number one. When it comes to the heist itself, why the gardener? Why was the gardener selected out of all of the other museums in the area? The gardener was no more necessarily special or more protected than other museums. So, what was the draw to target the gardener? How long had the robbery been planned for? Was it based on the 1982 plot that never unfolded? Who was involved with the organization of the burglary? Was there some sort of inside connection to the heist? And if there was, who was the inside connection? Was Rick Abbott involved with the robbery? Why were Abbott's footsteps the only ones picked up on motion detectors in the first floor gallery where the Monet was taken? Why did he open the side entrance to the museum minutes before the robbers rang the buzzer to get in? Was he signaling them that he was prepared for the robbery to begin? The thieves could have continued undetected and rampaging throughout the museum for hours. So why didn't they? However, on the other hand, according to studies, most art thefts last less than three minutes, a quick grab and dash before police have the chance to arrive. The Gardner heist lasted for almost an hour and a half. So how did the thieves know that they had so much time? How could the thieves have known that the only alarm to the outside world was the one behind the guard's desk? How did they know that none of the paintings were protected by anti-theft devices? Why did the thieves steal exactly what they did? Why did not they even attempt to go to the fourth floor and get more art? Why did they focus on the short gallery and the Dutch room? It's considered something of an anomaly. The thieves determined effort to steal the Napoleon flag. So why would they waste so much time on such an obscure object? And then even stranger, why did they bother taking the eagle finial at the top? Did the thieves wear gloves during the heist? And is that why there haven't been many fingerprints found? What happened to the duct tape and handcuffs that went missing in FBI custody? Where did they go? Were they purposely misplaced, or is their disappearance simply another coincidence? Was there any mob or gang connection to the burglary? Was Whitey Bulger involved at all with the heist? Or was he truthful when he said that he wanted his associates to find out who had carried it out because he felt that he was owed tributes to crime had taken place on his turf without his sanction. Why was Bobby Donati killed? Was it because he was going to tell authorities what he knew about the theft? Did he have any connection to the burglary at all? Was the burglary organized by someone within the patriarchal crime family? What are the odds that the men from the DRC auto electric shop owned by Carmilla Merlino all had so many coincidental connections to the crime. Did David Turner have anything to do with the robbery? Did Robert Guarenti actually have some of the artworks in his possession over the years, as his widow told authorities? If so, how did he get them? Did he have the whole stolen collection or just parts of it? Was Guarenti involved with the burglary? Did Guarendi actually give Robert Gentile some of the artwork after he was diagnosed with cancer? If he did, why? And again, if he did, why would Gentile deny the fact and risk being sent to jail when leading investigators of the artwork was a bit of a jail get-out-of-jail-free card? If Gentile had the art, what did he end up doing with it? What was in the false bottom of the backyard shed that was discovered in his Connecticut home in the 2012 raid by the FBI investigators. When the shed flooded years before the raid, Gentile's son claimed that his father was upset since whatever was stored in the shed was presumably damaged. So what was in the shed that had Gentile so worried? Why did Gentile have a copy of the Boston Herald from March, 1990 reporting the theft? Why did he have a piece of paper indicating what each piece might sell for on the black market? Was Gentile trying to orchestrate the return of the art as he later told investigators? Or was he keeping a record of what the art might be worth for his own accounting purposes? In 2013, the FBI announced that they knew the identities of the thieves and that they believed that they were dead. Why haven't they revealed the names of the individuals if they are dead. Are there people still alive connected to the robbery that the FBI are trying to put pressure on? And that's why they haven't revealed the names. If so, who are these people? The FBI also announced that their investigation found that, quote the art was transported to Connecticut in the Philadelphia region. And some of the art was taken to Philadelphia a few years after the heist. So who transported the art? Why was it taken to Philadelphia? Who was it given to in Philadelphia? Are all 13 pieces of art still together? Or have they been separated, parceled off to draw less attention? Have they been destroyed altogether? Items too distinct and famous now that the reward isn't worth the risk of having them. The statute of limitations for prosecution of theft has long since passed. So why hasn't anyone come forward to return them, especially with immunity guaranteed on the table? Did the original people involved with the theft lose control and thus access to the artwork? Who has the art now? Where in the world is the stolen art of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum? And is anyone still alive who can answer that? To quote the Gardner Heist by Ulrich Bolzer, if a painting is stolen, if it's gone missing, it cannot be replaced. Lost art is lost forever. The FBI says that only 5% of stolen artwork is ever returned to its owners. Julian Radcliffe, the director of the Art Lost Register, which helps in the recovery of stolen artwork, said that, quote, The chances for return of masterpieces are better, perhaps as high as 20% because there are so few buyers for paintings the world knows were stolen. As we know, according to Isabella Stewart Gardner's will, the museum on the day that she died was left in the manner in which it was to be left forever. Art couldn't be rearranged, sold or donated and new art couldn't be added If these conditions were ever violated, the entire collection, including the house and the land, was to be donated and turned over to Harvard University. Because of that stipulation, when the 13 pieces of art were stolen on March 18th, 1990, what was left behind of the paintings remains, their empty frames, in a way, Those empty frames have become a tragic, twisted exhibit of their own. They are a great example of beauty, but beauty that is terrible at its core, all the more terrible by the scars of what has been lost. Those frames have hung empty for over 30 years now. And despite the exhaustive globe-trotting investigation that has continued on in those 31 years, some might wonder how close we are to ever finding out What happened to the stolen works of art? Are they hidden away in some dank, dark basement? Has someone hung them up in their own collection, a gallery of secrets and stolen goods? Have they been buried, placed into the earth never to be seen again? Have they been destroyed? For 31 years since that day, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum has served as a beacon of beauty and a beacon of loss, a home to 11 empty frames and 13 missing treasures of art and history. It's time for the paintings to come back to that home. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you're liking what you've heard, feel free to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. As it so happens, this, strangely, sadly, wonderfully enough, is going to be the last episode of Dark as Hell. I won't be getting into the details here just yet, as there's so much more I want to say about this wild and rollicking journey that it's been, but keep your eyes on the lookout for a final episode, a final chat, a final farewell, later in the week. I'll catch you back here later this week, ready to get dark as hell, One last time.